Great being here. Um, Kim, thanks for the word. Um, is it great that our God is a worker? He constantly has these pictures, uh, whether doing a vineyard, you know, a garden, you know, here a wall. Um, the picture of God in charge, intentional, moving, I think is just wonderful and just very encouraging for us. Uh, the other reason I thought it was a good word um, was, all right, I decided to do this in February, March, when Albert reached out and said, hey, guys, I really need three weeks off. Can someone help me? And Ron was like, man, I'll be in Florida. I'm like, three weeks. Oh, I can do it. And the main reason was I so appreciate Albert, the sacrifice he makes here, just the giving, and just knowing that week after week and stuff like that, hey, the guy needs a break. But the second reason is ever since I got to come here, Somewhere in this past year, I've just loved being here. So, um, really fun. But when you come down, I say, okay, you got three weeks. Now, what, what would you do if you had three weeks? Like, I love exegeting scripture. It's just so much safer. You just share what's there, <laughs> okay? Um, and so, do you grab a small book like Titus, you know, uh, Jonah? But as I prayed, and Albert and I were talking this theme of our relational God was just weighing on my heart. And the more I pressed into it, the more I felt like, yeah, I, I think this is what God wants me to share. And, and in one sense, there's a little bit of tie in there with what Kim shared. So that was encouraging for me. So that's where we're going. Um, our relational God, which loosely aligns with the book of Ephesians. If you look at Ephesians 1 and part of 2, um, our, that is God's relational pursuit of us, of you and me. If you look at the second half of 2 and 3, uh, there's this whole thing of God's relational strategy. And then if you look at 4 to 6, it's God's relational imperatives. So... We are going to jump in with Ephesians 1, and I'm warning you, uh, we're just going to blast through this, most of this chapter of Ephesians 1. We'll start in at verse 3, go to 14. And for those of you who've read Ephesians before, you know this is a fire hose, okay? So buckle in. Here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have an obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. <sighs> I'm going to do what I'm sure Paul did right after this. Let's pray. Father, Son, and spirit. What can we do but thank you for what we just read? This is so unbelievable that I don't want to fully open my ears and heart to it. I hate being disappointed. And so much of this seems too good to be true. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. Jesus, you had these words penned on paper. You meant them for us for our good. Help us let our guards down and just receive it this morning. Receive your word, your truth, your spirit. Come, Jesus. Okay, so if that's what we're going to say, and we just read it. We can all go home and have lunch, right? Really? Like, because we know this, right? God loves us. We're chosen in him. Um, but even though we have heard it, accepted it, I don't know how many of us have swam in it, felt it, breathed it, as much as we need to in this life. I know I haven't. So one of my goals this morning is simply to share those truths and flesh it out through scripture. The idea of what I'm going to do now is um, to just come at this in a number of different ways that the Holy Spirit may please penetrate our heart. I got three sections. First is what happened. The second is what God did about it or does about it. And the third is why it matters to us, to you, to me. So what happened? And got to say, um, initially, um, some of the side notes here. I hate standing in front of this, but I'm going to need that. <laughs> so I'll try to do both. Um, some of these initial thoughts were stirred up by a book called Waymaker, which is by Ann Voskamp. Okay, so do recommend it. Really good book. And I want us to start at the beginning. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Question. What did the serpent attack? What he attacked was relationship. <laughs> I'm feeling this already. Uh, just like the billions of relationships that he was going to attack over the next thousands of years and the relationships he still attacks. So I know you trust, know the story. Adam and Eve, they went ahead, they grabbed the forbidden fruit. Verse 7. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. All right, we need to stop. Try to picture this. Recognizing just moments previous to this passage, Adam and Eve enjoyed a 100% relaxed, transparent, blissful relationship with their maker. They knew no shame, no anxiety, no trepidation being around God. They loved, enjoyed, even looked forward to the walks with him. Now they're fearful. They're petrified. They're hiding deep among the trees. They don't want to be seen, not by each other, not by creation, and definitely not by him. And so they hide. It's all about fear right now. Grab some fig leaves, sew them together, quick, hide, quick. He's coming. And then we get to verse 9. But, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? In the words of Ann Voskamp, it's God's first recorded question in all of history. And, the shortest question of the entire Hebrew Bible. And it's the question that's still asked today. Only three words. Where are you? Actually, in Hebrew, it's one word. Ayaka. God isn't asking for Adam's coordinates. According to Rabbi Yehuda Lieb Shapira Frankfurter, quoted in the Jewish Review, November 15, 2019, it is striking that he used the word ayaka when he could have used the more common generic word for where in the Hebrew, ifo, which simply means to locate. Ifo is the word Saul used when seeking David, and he, Saul, asked, where are Samuel and David? When Naomi asked about Ruth's whereabouts, where did you glean today? When Joseph was trying to track down his brothers, please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. Ayaka, on the other hand, expresses a heart motivation beyond mere location, and Ayaka conveys expectations. In other words, where are you gone? Where are you if you're not here with me? Shift your focus from Adam and Eve to God. Hear the pain in the question. As Anne puts it, where are you when it was once all about you and me? 
now it's about you and that damn lying snake. Where are you? Maybe the shortest question in the Hebrew Bible, but it will prove to be the hardest one to resolve. A nation will be birthed from a man, Abraham. They'll be enslaved, thank you, Edgar. <laughs> My man. They'll be enslaved and delivered from Egypt. Kingdoms and kingdoms will rise and fall. A people will be exiled and they will return. God himself will take on flesh. And death and hell will be shattered by the blood of an innocent sacrifice before that question can be answered from human lips as God wants to hear it. I am home. So the history of the world is all about a history of broken relationship. What's more remarkable is that the book, the Bible, records this God who pursues a relationship individual by individual throughout the generations. So I've often heard non-believers refer to Christianity as something that someone joins or a philosophy that they've agreed to. And I'm always amazed because I just find that so surprisingly inaccurate. That is not my story, and I don't think it's your story. I was grabbed by the back of the collar and yanked. Jesus says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me. I chose you. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us, me, you, even when we were dead, made us alive and raised us up and seated us with him. So where in that do you find, well, I'm glad you found something that's good for you. <laughs> but isn't that how the culture, the conversation that when people ask about my Christianity, that's what they say? So in case we didn't get it, Ephesians 2.8 even emphasizes this much more, and this is not your own doing. It wasn't mine, it wasn't yours, and it was no one's experience in all of history. So what I want us to do is soak in this. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to go through a lot of scriptures, okay? So Ed is going to be flipping through those pages like crazy. I'm going to be hitting the same note again and again. The purpose of hitting the notes is not so that you zone out, you know, wah, wah, wah. But think of it like a spike and a hammer. Or we're just going to keep hitting that spike again and again and again, trying to drive this truth deep down and make it more immovable. All right, so now we are in section two, which is what did God do about it? All right, and we're going to start right with the Old Testament and Abraham. Genesis 12, one to three. We're going to be flying through these. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Who's the initiator? 
the communicator, the planner, the fulfiller. God, 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 God. Jacob, fleeing from home so his brother doesn't kill him, he goes to sleep on his journey, and God interrupts him with a dream. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's a lot of eyes. There's no request from Jacob here, just declarations from God. Now, five verses later, Jason, Jacob does go ahead and vow X, Y, and Z. Um, if you be my God, then dot, dot, dot. God's already stated his side. And so 14 years later, God has to remind Jacob. He shows up in a dream in Genesis 31, 13 and says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. God is still not identified as Jacob's God. So God initiates a wrestling match. Genesis 32, 24. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. It's in the wrestling match that Jacob comes to know God. Jacob seems to be getting the upper hand. Daylight's showing up. And so all of a sudden, God just touches his hip socket and game over. <laughs> That's when Jacob says, God, bless me. The lens that God goes to reach us. Joseph, 37.5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. God gives Joseph a dream, knowing he'll be hated for it. God then leads Joseph for years down a very difficult path. Joseph didn't sign up for any of this. But God called him. And Joseph later testifies to that to his brothers. Genesis 45, 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Moses, Exodus 3, 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Note how unique and personal each of these callings is. Why is Moses fascinated with a bush that is burning and not consumed? Because that was the opposite of his life experience. He had a passion to help his blood people, passion enough to risk his life and murder an Egyptian. He was then incriminated. By who? By the people he tried to rescue. And he has to flee into exile for 40 years. He got burnt burnt bad. And so God calls him from a burning bush that is not consumed. Samuel, the lamp of God had not gone on. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he, Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. Twice more this happens. 
Why does Samuel keep going to Eli? Because as a boy being trained by Eli to be a priest in the temple, God's voice sounds like Eli's voice. God condescends to come to us in our small worlds in ways that we will hear him. He comes to us. He calls us. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What was the setting? In the year King Hezekiah died, a 50-year righteous king, stable government, and he's now dead. And there is these huge foreign powers on the doorstep of this tiny little kingdom. Everybody's unnerved. But if you're part of the monarchy, you are really scared. Jewish tradition says that Isaiah's dad was Amoz, the brother of Amaziah, the new king, placing Isaiah as part of the royal family. So how does God reveal himself to Isaiah? I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne as the awesome king. Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. Check out the call on Jeremiah. It is a personal declaration of what Paul wrote about you and me in Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. Ezekiel, and he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. As he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Ezekiel is a prophet of the Spirit, and right from the beginning, the Spirit enters him. There is no request on Ezekiel's part. There's no one laying hands on Ezekiel. He said to me, Amos, I love how Amos replies to the king of Israel when the king of Israel calls him a seer and tells him, go make your living prophesying in Judah. Get out of Israel. You're bothering us. Amos. I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the, law, the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Listen, this was not my idea. I was happily taking care of my goats. Can you relate to these stories? Do they connect with your story? It doesn't end with the Old Testament. Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Talk about your life about to be changed. Remember the prophetic word and a sword will pierce your heart also. Who signs up for this? Mary doesn't. Mary is happily engaged to a real nice guy. She's got it set. She's not looking for something like this. The Ethiopian eunuch. 
Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So, Ethiopian eunuch, how did you come to Jesus? Well, there was this guy on the road and he approached my chariot. Did he know that an angel got Philip to that part of the road? Did he ever find out that the spirit said to Philip, go up to that chariot? What about us? Was the Spirit having people pray for you? Did the Spirit send someone to talk to you? Was there a word the preacher was sharing that God meant for you? Paul. Now, as he, Paul, went on his way, I love this one, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Listen, Paul's not neutral. He is in full-blown assault against Jesus and Jesus' people. He is leveraging all his knowledge, heritage, position, influence to attack and crush the people of Jesus. And that's going to end right now. (laughs) Paul shares this story again and again in the book of Acts and in the letters especially to the Jewish brethren. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. This isn't my idea. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> so are you starting to understand like, why this is so important that we grasp how our salvation came about? Cornelius about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? <laughs> Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. I love these encounters. There's never, oh, it's about time you showed up. Every time there's this panic, fear, surprise, amazement. He stared at him in terror. Cornelius, go get Peter. So, Peter shows up, and Peter doesn't seem to know what to do or say. So God just takes over, moves in, baptizes them all in the Holy Spirit. Peter's now feeling a little bit behind and says, uh, I think you're supposed to get water baptized first. (laughs) God, you're so great. The curtain is torn in two, and you are just breaking out into this world of mankind that you created. And letting them know you love them and calling them to yourself. Lydia, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Who's the active person? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Why was it that I was leaning forward while the preacher was speaking? Why could I not pull myself away? The Lord, the Philippian jailer. 
The jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, note, not everyone does that. The soldiers who are guarding Jesus' tomb see an angel come down from heaven and roll the stone away. And they never said, what must I do to be saved? No, they ran off to the Pharisees and told the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, hearing this first-hand report, don't say, what must I do to be saved? Maybe we were wrong. <laughs> God comes to each person uniquely, personally, in ways that we will hear him. Our circumstances, our failures, our pains, our needs. No salvation story begins with man. God uses angels, men, earthquakes, yes. But it is God acting, choosing. So we know the terminology, right? We are chosen. But we are chosen by a chooser. He called you, or you would not be here. Listen to the words scripture uses to describe our coming to Jesus. The Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. The Thessalonians. For we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Peter says, though we have not seen him, you love him. And John says, we love because he first loved us. What is your story? All right, lunch assignment. Share your story. I always underestimate these things. You know, you, you, someone, not ah, share your testimony. And they start sharing. You're like, oh my gosh, really? That happened? No way. Just tell me more. Part three, why this matters to us. Why do we just take this time, a lot of time? Why is that important? It's because we live in what C.S. Lewis calls the shadowlands. There is a darkness to our atmosphere. There's a spirit of doubt and deception in the air that we breathe and the water we drink. There's an enemy of our soul who hates the lamb and who hates the children of the lamb. God has determined to crush Satan under our feet. Let's go back to the garden. After God cried out, where have you gone? Why are you not here? Only six verses later, God has made his assessment and given his declaration. Serpent, you shall not win. I will have back my mankind. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, this was ultimately done at the cross. Jesus' heel bruised, Satan's head crushed. 
But that's not the total picture. Remember what Jesus said to the 72. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. These 72 were stepping on Satan's head because of Jesus. Paul says at the close of the book of Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, the battle's never been between God and Satan. There's no battle between a creator and a created being. Okay? Just, they ain't. The battle, instead, is for God to crush Satan under our feet. Those who are held captive by the prince of darkness, set free, and then out of love for their creator, follow and obey him to death. Isn't that what God said? Remember the book of Revelations? Now the salvation, power, kingdom of our God has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they nod not their life unto death. So there is a war now, here, this past week. What did it look like? It looked like normal life. You were late for an event. Someone blew you off. Something did not go as you wanted it. You had a bad day. You gave into temptation. You're anxious. You're upset. You were fearful. Having just swam in the word for the past 30 minutes, Looking back, don't those events seem like they shouldn't have rattled you so much? You're called by the eternal God personally. He said the spirit upon you. That's a guarantee of an inheritance. You have a future and a hope. You're loved by God himself who never goes back on his promises. How could we be shaken? we are. As a matter of fact, at some points, we're probably sitting there like, is God even real? Remember those times you're sitting there like, does God even care? That's this atmosphere we live in. This is everybody. This is every believer. There's no believer who doesn't go through doubts and It's It's the atmosphere. And that's why we need to be speaking to our souls. That's why we need to be grabbing onto the word. That's why we need to be reminding ourselves again and again. Listen, there are gifts and graces that will help us persevere until Jesus returns. But when push comes to shove, it all comes down to this. God personally called you and me. If I walk away I walk away from him. When I disobey, I disobey him. If I love someone or something too much, I love it more than him. Ann Voskamp goes on to say, unlike Adam... 
when Abraham heard God calling for him, Abraham answered, Hinnani, here I am. Not in the sense of a roll call here, but in the sense of, I am all here. Hinnani is spoken only eight times in all the scripture. And every single time it's used, it's a transformative turning point. I'll give you two. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. I am all here. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. I am all here. I love my son. I love you more. Verse 11. I'm sorry, yes, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. He's just about to kill his son Isaac. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said again, here I am. Stop, go, stop. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. There was only one son who always unreservedly said, Hen and I, here I am. I am all here to do your will. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Here's the great news. Because Jesus said, Hen and I, we have hope. We are able to do. We are able to come home. Ayaka, where have you gone? Hinnani, I am fully here. I am home. Lord God, I want to give us time to just respond to these thoughts. Uh, For some, it might just be a a renewed awareness of God's love for us. Rob, can you come up? Thanks, man. Um, for others, there might be more that you just want to interact with God on. Um, you might just want to, there's stuff happening, stuff processing, you're, you're, you're hearing something. I want to give us time to hear. The book of Ecclesiastes says, do everything you can to help you listen. And as you're just, wherever you're at, I just want to encourage you with one other passage, just a few verses down from the Hebrews passage we just read. It says, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the way he opened for us through his flesh, let us draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith. Don't hide from your creator. <laughs> he knows. And he comes for us. He came for us. He comes for us, even now. And he wants us to draw near. He sacrificed his son that there could be no obstacle, nothing to get in the way, nothing. Rob's going to lead us in a song, first two verses. Um, then we're going to pause after that. So I also just want to ask if um, just anybody wants prayer. Um, believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and just God being able to personally speak and minister to you. So we're going to play just, Rob's going to give us some background. But if anybody just wants prayer, just raise our hand. And um, 
I'd love to pray for you. Others might love to pray for you. Okay, let's um, continue with the last two verses. I'm going to pray here, and then we'll read back. Father God, thank you for grabbing us by the back of the collar and bringing us to yourself. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the many years of setting up, Lord God, all these situations so that the son could die for us. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank you for making us alive. Thank you for your word, which captures this, speaks to us, says it again and again. Thank you for the gifts of grace. Thank you for sunshine and birds, Lord God. Thank you, Lord God, for life itself. Thank you for relationships. Thank you for people. Lord, I pray the echo that is in all of our ears as we go from here, Lord God, be your voice. I love you. I'm so glad you're home. Lord, we look forward to that day when we look in your eyes, Lord, when we are finally home. May we hear your voice leading us every day, Lord. Leading us, Lord. Amen. Amen.